Father, we gladly submit to your kingship as we come before your word. It's our desire to live in terms of it. We recognize our weakness, and so we pray that your Holy Spirit would quicken the word to our heart, take away blindness, enable us not only to see, but to embrace and to love your word and to live it out. Help us to be not only hearers, but doers of that word. And through that, may we have an impact upon this society. We pray uh, that you would anoint me, Father, to preach your word faithfully, and uh, we ask that you would quicken it to our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. If you turn in your Bibles to Galatians 6, this is the sixth part of our uh, section of prosperity and poverty, prosperity and the Christian that we've been looking at and uh, trying to analyze why is it that sometimes Christians don't enter fully into the prosperity that God intended for them. And uh, uh, these deal with eight laws of harvest that are universal. Galatians 6, verses 6 through 10. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Amen. You may be seated. In this uh, series on prosperity and poverty, our theme verse is 3 John 2, and we've not recited that for a while, so I just want to test your memory, see if you've got that down. Uh, 3 John 2, let's recite it together. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Let's try it once more. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. One of the things that we've been seeing is that God loves to prosper his people. Uh, he loves to uh, bless them in their uh, finances. He loves to bless them and give them spiritual success, bless them in their families, in their friends, in their uh, finances, any area of life. When we give ourselves entirely to the Lord and we say, Lord, we're your stewards. Take us, use us as you please. God pours back a hundredfold uh, into our lives. And this uh, passage here dealing with the eight laws of harvest are very critical. And the neat thing about them is they're universal. They apply whether you want them to apply or not. Okay? Uh, it's when we try to buck against them, we get hurt, but they are universal. They apply to unbelievers. They apply to believers. They apply to societies. In fact, the laws in this series we have seen were something that gripped the Protestants at the time of the Protestant Reformation, and I think they were brought uh, into fullest understanding during the time of the Puritans. And today we come to Law 6, which is another law that's associated with the Protestant Reformation. I'm going to use different language to describe it, but back, uh, uh, many people speak of it as the Protestant work ethic, or the Calvinistic work ethic, or the Puritan work ethic. Uh, there's different ways that people speak of it, but it's always tied in with reformational thinking. Now, here's how it's labeled in, in uh, this series. We reap in proportion to our diligence. 
Okay, we always reap in proportion to our diligence to the extent that we really lay hold of the Protestant work ethic. To that extent, God is going to prosper us with an increased harvest. Now, let me contrast that with law number three, because there could be some confusion, overlap here. We saw in law number three that we always reap a multiplied increase of anything that we sow. You know, you put one kernel of corn into the ground, and it's not just going to give a few kernels, it's going to give several cobs of corn with many kernels on those cobs. There's always going to be a multiplied increase. This law, law number six, goes beyond that. And it says to the extent that the farmer really is diligent and uses quality in the way in which he plants and he fertilizes and he weeds and, and he harvests, he's going to gain an extra increase. And so the, uh, the third law dealt with God's role. Only God can make increase. doesn't matter how much you sow. Only God can give the increase. This deals with our responsibilities. So uh, we will reap to the degree that we are diligent in, in our sowing. Now, let me say that proportion, you know, the proportion of our diligence, it can deal with quantity, it can deal with quality. It can deal with the variety of seed that we put in. It can deal with how many fields that we are investing that seed into. For example, if you look at Galatians 6 and verse 6, it's talking about all things that we're investing. It's talking about variety of seed that we're planting. In verse 10, it's talking about various fields. If you plant into 10 fields, you're going to get far greater harvest than if you plant into one field. And so it says there, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all especially to those who are of the household of faith. And uh, uh, I want you to turn with me just to see how universal this is to a few scriptures. Turn to the previous book at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and let's uh, read in verse 6. <clears throat> but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Okay, you can see the, the, this law of harvest working out there. This is why Proverbs 12 and verse 27 says that the lazy man will lose what has already been gained. And then it goes on to say, but diligence is man's precious possession. Diligence is man's precious possession. That's Proverbs 12 verse 27. In fact, you know, if you're an immigrant that's gone into a uh, a country where people are prejudiced against that person, uh, this law, this diligence may be the only, at least it's the most important economic uh, possession that he may have. You know, he may not be able to get jobs as easily, and he can say, hey, I, I can work harder than that fellow if you will hire me, and I will work better than that fellow. Diligence is his precious possession that can enable him to, uh, to advance in life. And so I want to examine the question, do we really embrace and are we living out the Protestant work ethic? And do you do it not only in business, but do you do it in other areas of your life? To what degree are you investing into your marriage, into your savings, uh, your education? Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10 says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. So the Protestant work ethic is not just something that applies to to business, it applies to everything that we are doing. And it's not enough to just have it once in a while. Galatians 4.18 says, It is good to be zealous in a good thing always and not only 
when I am present with you. Reason a boss does not have to check up on a person who's got the Calvinistic uh, or a Puritan work ethic is because that guy's not driven by what other people think of him. He's driven with the vision of the harvest. He's future-oriented like we saw before, and uh, this ethic is something that drives him in life. And what I want to do today is I want to chase you through a ton of scriptures that illustrate this in all different slices of life. And if you're taking notes, you're going to have to write notes like mad, especially the references. Let me give you a tip. When I'm giving these references, look at these split. Write the the verse reference down first and then the book because it's easier to remember books than it is to remember the, the book reference. So if you want some of these scriptures, we're going to really be booking through. And I thought I'd start with... Uh, uh, the issues of business and wealth and industry, because that's where most people start with uh, the Protestant work ethic. And we want to see, do we excel in our career, in the work, in the job that God has called us to be involved in? The Puritans, over and over again, encourage their people to be the absolute best in everything they put their hand to. It didn't matter whether it was being a mom or a wife or a printer or a cook or a farmer, they said, we need to excel. We need to have quality in what we put in. We need to have diligence. Proverbs 10 and verse 4 says, the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 21.5 says, the plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty. Surely to plenty. There is no doubt about it in God's mind that the Protestant work ethic works. It really works. And it works even if somebody's trying to rip you off in the business like they tried to rip off Jacob. I remember the story of Jacob. He worked for his father-in-law. And his father-in-law really wanted him around because he was indispensable but was always trying to cheat him. And here's what Jacob told his wives. And you know that with my might I have served your father. Hey, there's the Protestant work ethic. Yet your father has deceived me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not allow him to hurt me. Okay, there's God's blessing. He did not have good working conditions. He had lousy working conditions, as he goes on to tell, and yet he was absolutely indispensable to his father-in-law. His father-in-law needed him, and we must become indispensable as well. One of the things I try to teach my kids when they're off doing jobs, whether it's mowing or something else like that, is not to try to get the least amount of work for the most amount of pay, but to go overboard in blessing other people because then you're going to be given good referrals and tips and you're going to be serving in the way in which God intended you to be. In the long run, you're going to be the one who's going to have long-term success. And it's not something that uh, comes naturally. It's something we really need to teach. And that's one of the reasons uh, the scriptures talk so much about this work ethic. Proverbs is literally riddled with references to the connection between a servant's heart, really diligent service, and uh, 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 having influence and prosperity. Proverbs 12, verse 24 says, The hand of the diligent will rule. If you want to have greater dominion given to you by the Lord, then you need to have greater service, diligent service. We tend to be skeptical. I think that this is even going to get us ahead. We think uh, uh, everybody we look at around us, you know, is uh, seeming to get ahead without the Protestant work ethic. 
Uh, we live in a society of power religion and power politics, and consequently, we see a lot of people who get ahead through relations and through manipulation and knowing the right person. And it takes real faith sometimes for people to believe that this, is wor- th- this will work out, that if I really am diligent and I engage in the Protestant work ethic, I'm going to get ahead. I don't know how many of you have read Weber's uh, uh, famous thesis, but he, he points out the Protestant work ethic was something that revolutionized uh, the West, revolutionized culture. And he ties it in with some of these other principles. He didn't call them laws of harvest, but he ties them in with some of the other things that we've looked at in Galatians as well. Uh, Christ says the same thing when he says those who serve the most are the greatest. They will have the greatest rule. Uh, Proverbs 17.2 says a wise servant will rule over a son who causes shame. Get that. A wise servant will rule over a son who causes shame and will share an inheritance among the brothers. In other words, he is saying the Protestant work ethic, it's going to take you much further than blood relations will. That's exactly what it's saying here. Now, we tend to not believe that. We've grown up in a culture where people using manipulation and other things like that to get ahead. And yet, if you have a, uh, a successful business you recognize this principle is absolutely true. Your business will not succeed if you don't take the attitude that the customer is always right and the customer needs to be served and we need to please the customer and we need to satisfy the customer. That's what service is all about. Here's what David Chilton said in his book, Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators. Great book, by the way. If you've not read that, it's fun reading and it's a great introduction to biblical economics, but... He said, profits are possible because of the biblical principle of dominion through service. The efficient, that is, least wasteful producer receives the greatest return. The moment he turns from serving the public, his profit will disappear because the consumers will take their business elsewhere. The consumers always decide which producer will get the profits. Now, it is true that some of the bigness of big business has been made possible by unbiblical government subsidy and protectionism, But apart from such ungodly activity, the characteristic feature of big business is efficient mass production for the needs of the public. And the more efficient a producer is, the more profit he earns, and consequently, he is able to exert even more influence upon business, which is as it should be. The control of production is in the hands of those who are the best in serving customers. He's simply saying business does not tend to go to those who are lazy and inefficient. It goes to those who have really taken this principle sincerely. And they're, 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 they're really moving forward. And I think America, to a great degree, has been living out those principles in past years, even though in recent history they've been moving more and more away from that into an economy that uh, you've got more resentment and envy, you've got more manipulation, and uh, uh, people aren't living that through. And I'm not going to give a bunch of examples because I want to move out to other territories, but just as one example, look at the steel industry, and you examine how it has been subsidized over time. Uh, These subsidies have actually kept it from having to really work in terms of competition and serving, and they have become extremely inefficient, and the power in the steel industry has gone to, to Japan. Because Japan's been living out this principle. Remember we said, these principles apply. It doesn't matter if you ask for forgiveness, you're going to get a harvest. You sin, 
you get a harvest whether you've asked for forgiveness or not. Yes, in terms of your relationship to God, that's restored. But remember David, we said that um, uh, with Bathsheba's situation, he said, yes, your sins are forgiven, but because you have done this, your child's going to die, you're going to have the sword in your family, there's all kinds of things that are going to happen. Harvest principles apply across cultures. Now let's just compare cultures a little bit. One of the intriguing exegetical conclusions that Gary North came to in his uh, commentary on Deuteronomy was you can tell when a, a society has just laws if you see a lot of immigrants who are becoming wealthy. He says that's just a sure sign that uh, the society has just laws is when uh, they can begin to be uh, uh, become wealthy, get out of their echoes, and have economic opportunity. Let me just read a section from that. He said, this is an important mark of a righteous society. Strangers flourish. The rule of law, if the law is just, provides the judicial framework for economic growth. Immigrants are notoriously thrifty and hardworking compared to those who stayed behind in the old country. What we call the Puritan work ethic, which includes future orientation and thrift, enables the immigrants to prosper. A society that oppresses strangers is unjust. The blessings of justice can be seen in communities of immigrants who prosper and eventually grow wealthy enough to move out of their cultural ghettos in a generation or two. Now, there are a number of ways in which America has been drifting away from exactly that kind of a just society. We've covered several of those in the Mercy Ministries class, and the reason we've had to is because we need to know the ways we can do end runs around those as we seek to bring people out of poverty and into, into the blessings of the Lord. But let me just give you one, and it's minimum wage. A lot of Christians, they say, minimum wage is great because it makes everybody prosperous. Wrong. It puts a lot of people out of work, and it always has, and it always will. Um, unions have been big supporters of the minimum wage, not because it benefits their own people. Their own people always have far higher wages than the minimum wage. And so what's going on here? Is it because they just they, they have interest for people who aren't part of the union? Well, typically, they've never had interest in protecting people who aren't part of the union. The reason why unions have been supporters of the minimum wage is because it takes the competition out. It keeps people from undercutting that, what they're producing inefficiently by coming at it from a lower wage. And, um, and uh, the only thing that people who are down and out, maybe there's racial prejudice or they're immigrants or something like that, the only two cries that they have historically been able to make that have enabled them to prosper are, first of all, the cry, I can do this job, I can, I, I'm going to work at this job far harder than the other person will. And the second cry is, I'm going to do the job better than those people can. Please hire me. I'll do it for less pay. I'll work harder. And what minimum wage does is it makes the first cry illegal. And because the first cry is illegal, it makes the second cry impossible to ever determine. How are people going to get the opportunity to prove that they can do it better? See, socialism completely takes away incentive and industry and uh, initiative. And consequently, it destroys the income of the people. Socialism is the absolute antithesis of the Puritan work ethic. They are, they are total opposites. Uh, don't let anybody tell you that uh, Scripture does not have anything to say about, about issues of communism versus free market. It has a whole lot to say. There are huge books that have been written on the subject. 
And so uh, we really need to embrace with a zeal uh, Proverbs 12, verse 27, that says, Diligence is man's precious possession. A Christian should strive to be indispensable in his job, even if that pagan out there does not like you. And he says, man, I could care less about Phil Kaiser. I don't really care for his religion and the things that he stands for, but I don't dare fire him because he is so indispensable to my business. He does his job well, and I will get less profits if I fire this person than if I keep that person. A wife needs to be so indispensable to the industry and the business of her husband that far from dragging her husband down and taking away his time and making it difficult for him, her husband rises up and calls her blessed. Uh, see, her job is to be a helper suitable for her husband, according to Genesis. And I think we need to keep in balance the, 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 the issue of, um, of business and family. Which came first in Genesis? Now, most people say the family is the most important thing. Which came first in Genesis? You look it up. It's the business that came first. It was not the family. And the wife was added as a helper to help him in his dominion. See, the, the family did not compete against the business, but the business did not compete against the family. The two were so intermeshed, you could not separate them. And I think embedded right into the, into the creation uh, the way God has made this world work is this dominion mandate, is this, um, this issue of the Protestant work ethic. If we violate that, it's going to be to the hurt of the family, not to the help of the family. Now, yes, we can become imbalanced. We're going to be seeing how the, the, the father needs to invest into his wife and into his family in different ways. But don't make that dichotomy that it's family versus business. The two need to, in some way, be enmeshed together and the wife and the, the children can be a, a support and encouragement to that. And so we're called to dominion through service, and prosperity only comes to those who are not lazy, to those who put quality into the things that they are doing. Now let's just quickly, now that I've given that back, let's quickly go through a whole bunch of other areas of life. You will prosper in your worship to the degree that you are seeking the Lord with all your might. Deuteronomy 4.29 says, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. You say, Oh, I wish I could enter into the presence of the Lord in my worship. Then he says, Seek him with all your heart. You've got to invest in terms of the Puritan work ethic. Hebrews 11.6 says about God, He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. How do you seek God in your private devotions? You have passion in your prayer, in your prayer life. If not, it may be because there's some aspect of something you're not investing in there with diligence. One of the things I found uh, when I was um, studying, I was such a staid individual in years past, and I never did anything out loud, never raised my hands, never used my body. In fact, uh, we never even hugged in our family. When I was sent off to boarding school, my parents, you know, they shook my hand, which I tell you, that affects a person negatively, you know. Scripture says we're to, we're to use our bodies and everything. And I have found, well, let me give a bit, a bit of other information. If you read in ancient literature, and even in the ancient church, um, people always read, and one of the Hebrew words even indicates it's the moving of the lips. They always read out loud. They prayed out loud. They didn't do things, for the most part, silently in their head. In fact, who was it? It was, um, 
who was the first, what was that? Jerome was the first church father, I believe that's right, uh, who read silently in his head. And people were wondering, what is he doing? You know, there's no lips moving or anything, but he was probably speed reading in his head. And uh, that's the way we tend to think. But I tell you, it takes a lot of the emotion, a lot of the passion and energy out of your worship. And so I have even in my private devotions, I pray out loud and I try to pray with, with energy. I sing and I shout to the Lord in my private devotions. Who cares what others are thinking down the street, you know, when they come along. But we need to invest into our worship physically, mentally, emotionally. We need to put in if we're going to get out a harvest. Uh, that um, uh, that is full. Let's apply it to some other areas. Love. Deuteronomy 6.5 You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. You love God with your body? You know, Matthew adds, with your mind. You love God with your mind. Are you thinking through the songs? Are you thinking, uh, uh, thinking God's thoughts after him? Sometimes God's, God tests us in Deuteronomy 13.3, it says, The Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And then when you pass that test, he says, I'll bless you. I'll multiply you. Verse 17. Are we apathetic in our love? Well, God says, don't expect me to manifest myself in rich ways to you. Uh, Jesus said, He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You say, I, I just wish Christ would manifest himself to me in a more powerful way. Well, Jesus said in verse 21, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And he will come to, we will come to him and make our home with, you, with him. And I don't have time to speak of all of the different ways in which God says he will pour blessing upon blessing into our lives as we, by his grace, by the power of his Spirit, express our love back to him. But Deuteronomy 30 in verse 16 says, when we love God in the concrete ways that chapter tells us to love him, it says, the Lord your God will bless you in the land in which you go in to possess. We're talking about the prosperity in the Christian. Well, here's one law that factors into it. Does your service to God grow weary? Uh, Galatians tells us, boy, it's very easy for that to happen. It says, do not grow weary. Uh, if you go weary in this sowing harvest process, you may not reap. And so Paul tells us, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Romans 12, verse 11. Uh, Deuteronomy 11, verse 13 and following is um, one of many passages that speak of an increased harvest to those who serve God well. Let me read that. Deuteronomy 11:13, And it shall be that if you earnestly Okay, there's that diligence. If you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain your new wine and your oil, and I will send grass in your field for your livestock that they may eat and be filled. Does this law apply to the gathering of wisdom? Absolutely it does. Proverbs 8, verse 17 says, and it's personified wisdom speaking, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. Not a haphazard, yeah, Lord, I, I need some wisdom today. No, he says, seek wisdom diligently. It applies to teaching our children. Deuteronomy 6, 7. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. And then God goes on to describe the incredible blessings he will pour into our children's lives as we diligently teach them. You know, we're going to reap from our children in eternity and in time to the degree that we invest into them. Does it apply to faith? Yes, it does. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. And that's why James tells us if we've got wavering faith, tossed to and fro, double-minded, he says, don't expect any answer to your prayers. It applies to faith. Does it apply to how we give? Yes, it does. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And what is the result of this generous, cheerful, joyful giving? The next verse says, God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance in every good work. I mean, he just, he he pours on the superlatives there. I've had times when God has prompted me at a worship service to just empty my wallet, give the Lord everything, And people say, well, that's a rash thing to do. That's kind of silly. But if God prompts you in those areas and you give joyfully to the Lord, he will pour back into your life far more than you have been able to give. And I've just seen it over and over again. Proverbs 11.24 says, There is one who scatters, yet increases more. And there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. And he not only talks about gaining it in history, but gaining it in eternity. 1 Timothy 6.19 says we're laying up treasures in heaven as we're giving generously. Christ said the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. But there's also an overflow. This harvest goes in every direction. 2 Corinthians 9 indicates that the willingness and the zeal and the eagerness of the Corinthians as they gave generously... It said that it stirred up the Macedonians and those in Achaia to have their own zeal and excitement and enthusiasm in giving. It's almost like it's an infectious disease. You know, not a disease. It's an infectious non-disease. It's something that really takes hold of people and makes them excited. When they see, I cannot outgive the Lord, it gives you an enthusiasm, a gladness about giving. Believe it or not, this applies even to eschatology. Why don't you turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. And uh, I just want to overturn an idea. A lot of people approach eschatology in a fatalistic way as if there's absolutely nothing we can do. There's no human responsibility related to eschatology. And Peter, I think, says absolutely not. Peter says that's hyper-Calvinism, right? Um, Calvin said that God fulfills his prophecies through the means of his people the means of prayer, the means of our diligence, and they will not be fulfilled apart from that. Now, he hastens to go on to say it's God's grace that stirs his people up to provide that, but we, we can say this law apri- applies even to how prophecy will be fulfilled. Okay, Second Peter chapter 3, and where am I beginning here? Verses 10 and following. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Okay, here's 
Here is a prophecy of the second coming of Christ. And notice that he does not say, okay, sit back and just watch it. You know, there's nothing you can do. Notice in verse 11, he says, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening? You can speed up. Hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Why is it that Peter even addresses them in this way? Well, it's because in verses 3 through 9, the scoffers have been saying, where is the sign of his coming? Things have been the same as they always have been. doesn't matter whether you're righteous or whether you're a, you're a sinner. God not, does not bring sanctions in history. And Peter says, that's ridiculous. They're willfully ignorant of this fact. And then he lists some sanctions that God gave. Sodom and Gomorrah, he gives the flood. He says, they're willfully ignorant of that. And then he answers their question. He says, why is God slow in coming back? Well, it's because the Great Commission hasn't been fulfilled yet, and God is interested in the salvation of his people. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. When the last elect person has come to salvation, when all of the nations are discipled, he says that's when Christ is coming back. That's why he is being slow. He's holding off. And so he says it's all related to verse 12, hastening. We can be hastening the day of the coming of Christ. Um, and at verse 14, our diligence and uh, the salvation that we as well need to be interested in. So this law even applies to eschatology. Um, now I mentioned earlier that this law applies to any giving that we do above and beyond the tithe. And people can say, I can understand that. But what about tithing itself? You know, that's just something that's a duty. Can that relate to harvest? Well, Scripture says it does. Deuteronomy 26 calls us to tithe with all our heart and to seek the Lord's blessings. Malachi tells us, test the Lord and see if he will not open up the floodgates of heaven and pour back into your lives. God applies this to diligence, to how we obey and apply the law of God. And we'll end with this one. Exodus 15 Verse 26 says, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. There's a lot of Christians who just doubt that. But they have to answer to God. God's word is clear. There are sanctions in history that does make a difference in how we relate to history. Just because they're ignoring the eight laws of harvest does not make God a liar. Let God be true and every man a liar. Deuteronomy 30 tells us if we obey God, we turn to him with all of our heart and all of our soul. It says, the Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, and in the produce of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as he rejoiced over your fathers. I think Christians a lot of times just tend to be skeptical of it, even applying to business, you know, the Protestant work ethic. But God says in Deuteronomy 28, it applies to all of life. Scripture calls us to rejoice with all our hearts.
Zephaniah 3.14, to believe with all our heart. Acts 8.37, to pursue holiness with all our heart. 2 Peter 1.5, in fact, in that 2 Peter, you read on, he says, if you do this, you diligently do this, so an entrance will be given to you abundantly into the kingdom, uh, something along those lines. I can't quote it quite exactly, but uh, every area of life, we need to see this law apply. Now, I know that the horse died five minutes ago, and I've been beating a dead horse probably unnecessarily for some of you, but we have such a tendency to think God will bless us irrespective of our activities that I think it's better to give too much than too little. And I've only given you a tiny fraction of the verses I pulled out on, on this passage. So I want to end by asking three questions. First, how many fields are you sowing God's grace into? Galatians 6.10 says we're to do good to all men, especially to those who are the household of faith. We need to seek to providentially bless and encourage and minister to all whom God has providentially put into our path. And that does not mean that we can't specialize. There will be specialization. Uh, you know, it may be that you're just going to have a little plot over here for herbs, and you're going to have an acre of peas and 10 acres of corn, so to speak, and you may not be investing at all into the field uh, that a politician is investing in, because that's not your responsibility. You may have a little section that uh, talks about your influence on that politician. The question is not, have you been sowing into somebody else's field? There's far more fields than any one individual can sow into, but have you been sowing into the fields, all of the fields that God has given you responsibility for? Have you been investing? blessing and teaching and encouragement into your wife and your children. You wives, have you been investing into your husbands, uh, uh, sowing into their lives? Have you been uh, doing it into your, uh, your, your savings account and into your, into your education of your children? How many fields have you been in, in, investing and sowing into? It may mean a tired dad just talking to his son uh, rather than watching TV. Um, those of you who have read the prayer of Jabez, I think you know what I'm talking about when you speak about the opportunities that God opens up to us, and we just need to be sensitive. Is this a field God wants me to sow into? Secondly, how consistently are you sowing into savings and education and family? There are some things which once in a while haphazard won't work. It's got to be consistent. Thirdly, how good is your seed? Don't just go on hunches. You've got to study, study, study. What's the word that you're planting? You've got to know it. And then fourthly, how diligent. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And Proverbs, diligence is man's precious possession. It's my prayer. It would be the possession of each and every one here this morning. Amen. Father God, we thank you for the challenge of your word that we, by the power of your grace, would be diligent in everything that we put our hands to. Help us, Father, to do that, and help us to enter into the kind of spiritual and emotional and other kinds of prosperity that you desire for your people. We know that there are times of warfare when we will uh, suffer. There are times of setbacks, but we, Father, want to have a long-term perspective uh, of uh, your purposes in our lives, in our, in our society. And I pray that you would help us as a church to uh, so lay hold of these principles and so consistently apply them that there could not help but be a difference in Omaha as a result. And we pray this in Christ's name.
Amen.